Hello and welcome to the Unknown Warrior podcast with Jason and Pete from Squeaky Pedal. Today we're delighted to be joined by author and historian John Broom. John is the author of Reported Missing in the Great War, 100 Years of Searching for the Truth, which is published by Pen and Sword Books, and he's going to be talking to us today about the missing soldiers of the First World War. So hello, John, and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, I've listened to all the previous podcasts and they've been extremely interesting, so I'm very gratified to have the chance to take part myself. Thank you very much. It's our pleasure to have you on the podcast. I think it'd be really nice to start with where your own interest in the First World War began. Okay, well, I've always been interested in history. I mean, I studied as an undergraduate in Sheffield, and then I taught history for several years in a secondary school. In terms of the era of the world wars, my specific interest came about when researching a PhD on Christianity during the Second World War. I was really interested because my father had fought in the Second World War. It was a very strong Christian, so I wanted to find out more about that culture. And then from that, it's really extended into an interest into Christianity across both wars. So one day, about seven, eight years ago, I was driving through the countryside like I do, stopping up at churches, looking for war memorials, etc. And I came across one in a village called Stratton in Dorset, where the 10 names on the war memorial, three were all the same surname and they're all officers. A little bit of research turned out that a fourth one on there was the brother-in-law of these three brothers. So that, that really pricked my interest. And when I started researching that family, I found that, in fact, two of them had been missing soldiers during the war. And I was fortunate enough to then get in contact with the the descendants of that family, who had a tremendous archive of letters and papers relating to the the search for one of their missing sons. Uh, It was absolutely voluminous archive. So this really pricked my interest in terms of finding out more about the families of the missing and the heartache they went through. Because it's very easy to go to the Meningate, Teepval Memorial and see thousands and thousands of names and we know there's a story behind each man but it's also the story of the family behind those men that really interested me. So if we begin with how did the nature of the fighting of the First World War create so many unknown fallen soldiers? It's really the sort of industrialised scale of slaughter that was taking place on the Western Front. I mean firstly many bodies were simply blown to smithereens. They, they, they were literally uh, missing and unknown and will never be found, never be identified. Other missing soldiers were unidentifiable because although you could recognise certain body parts, you couldn't put those bodies together with with a dog tag or any regimental uh, insignia to recognise them. Um, Some soldiers were actually given a, a decent Christian burial, but then that ground had to be seeded during a retreat and, you know, the bodies might get churned up and lost forever. Some bodies just had to be left to the mercies of what the Germans might do or not do with them. So really, around half the soldiers during the First World War on the Western Front eventually ended up as unknown. Some will be buried in, in graves and have a known unto God sort of marker. But you know, the, the industrial scale, the slaughter, the movement to and fro on, on the Western Front just created this, this, this army of the unknown. With the soldiers that sort of saw their comrades kind of fall and, as you say, the mass slaughter that kind of took place what what did the soldiers that remained do initially to try and mark the graves of their comrades that fallen well initially if possible they tried to give them a decent burial with a wooden cross uh, one example i came across was uh, a man called william bird who had been killed in action on Obers ridge in may 1915 before the war he played cricket for oxford university in middlesex and his father reverend bird received a letter that indicated he'd been given a decent burial and he wrote back to the person who sent that letter saying, thank you so much for kindly sending me particulars of the position of my late son's grave. 
It is a great comfort to my daughters and myself to know the exact spot which I hope I may be able to visit after the war is over. So as evident from that letter and, and many, many other examples, that many men were in fact given a, a decent burial in a defined spot with a cross and, and a, you know, a memorial service. Unfortunately for, for the Reverend Bird and so many tens of thousands of other families, the subsequent fighting meant that that grave was lost and is remembered on the Latourette memorial to the missing these days. So soldiers and particularly the Italian's chaplains did make very strenuous attempts to mark the graves of their fallen comrades. You know, some men were, were identifiable and were probably buried close to the front line. Uh, men possibly killed by a sniper bullet or a shell explosion whilst holding a trench where their body was externally, you could still make out who it was. Men who had been sort of died, collapsed in the mine trench. These are all identifiable and were given a, a burial. Some men would be less identifiable and buried in sort of general plots and cemeteries. And in fact, when the Imperial War Graves Commission came around and started replacing lots of these wooden crosses with the, the, the tablets we see today, families could have these crosses sent home. And there was a project on the go during the centenary of the war. It's on a website called thereturn.co.uk where they attempted to trace and map where all these um, crosses are. So if you happen to be you know, in the countryside going to a village church, quite often you'll see one of these original crosses from the Western Front burials on the wall of the church as a memorial there to, to the man who it, it commemorates. And how did the authorities advise families of the deaths of their loved ones? Well, the, the official means was the, the dreaded telegram from the war office. A lad on a, on a bike would, would cycle around, knock on the door and hand the telegram to the father, mother or wife who almost wanted to open it but didn't want to open it. So that, that was the official means. But quite often that wasn't the first way in which a family would have found out about the death. Sometimes they would have already received a letter from the chaplain, particularly if the man had been particularly religious and had a good relationship with that chaplain. Sometimes it might be the man's commanding officer, particularly if he was an officer himself or an adjutant or a comrade. So it really depended on the vagaries of the postal service as to which communication the family would, would receive first. If you did get informed by a letter, frequently the letters were at pains to emphasise the positive. You know, I mentioned the sniper's bullet earlier, the, he was shot clean through the head by a sniper's bullet and died instantly. Surrounded by his comrades, he was well-loved and respected. So the, the families had many means of finding out, but the official means wasn't always the first port of call, as it were. In fact, there's quite a painful story of one of the men in the book, Private Arthur Greensmith of the Sheffield Pals. It's quite possible that the first his family knew of his death on the first day of the Battle of the Somme was when a letter that his sister had written to him after two weeks of not hearing, where she began, I hardly know how to begin to write to you. My heart is well nigh bursting, first with hope, then despair. I should not be writing this if hope wasn't the strongest. So she dispatched that note and it came back nine days later with the adjutant having written on the back, missing in France, relatives informed, returned to sender. So it's quite possible the first way that the Greensmith family knew of Arthur's death was the returned letter. And then, so, so on the on the flip side of that, as you mentioned, like the the missing, then like did did they could they really give them any detail if they were posted as missing, or was that a you know was it was it sort of just a, a some form of comfort, as it were, I suppose that they're not dead, they are just missing. They may you know they might turn up. Is that kind of the idea? It, it was very difficult because the very nature of being missing, you were unlikely to have a clean account of, yes, I saw him walking towards the German lines. Then I saw the Germans come out and take him prisoner and escort him off safely to his forthcoming imprisonment. It just doesn't happen like that. Yeah, and in the chaos of the fighting, missing genuinely meant we have no idea. 
you know, there's, there's a slight possibility he's taken prisoner. The slight possibilities in a in a field hospital, you know, unconscious and somehow having mislaid all, all identifiable, you know, documents and, and tags, etc. That that did happen occasionally where people were missing and, and then returned, but really missing in the vast majority of cases meant missing and we'll never hear of him again. And so what were the lengths that they kind of went to in that regard then? Was it just passing of time kind of thing, was it? or There were various things that could be done. So in terms of officialdom, at the beginning of the war, the, the British Red Cross and Order of St. John set up a, a wounded and missing service. This was initially for the families of officers because it was more easy to identify you know, what had happened to them. They, they stood out more, had more prominence, would be seen by a greater number of men. But as, as the war went on, the, the searching bureau of the, the Red Cross and St. John were overwhelmed with, with inquiries. So they set up offices in Paris, uh, in Alexandria, offices um, all, all around the world. And they recruited volunteers, one of whom was the, the novelist, E.M. Forster, who incidentally worked in the Alexandria office. And these volunteers would go into casualty clearing stations, military hospitals behind the front line, hospitals back in Britain where men were, were convalescing, armed with lists of the missing. And they would go bed to bed, say, right, what, what regiment were you in? Ah, okay, have you heard of, or did you see what happened to Corporal Smith on the 9th of May, 1915? Uh, so there were efforts made that way to gather information about what had happened of the missing. Sometimes, the volunteers were strike lucky and a really definitive account about a man's fate will be given. But as you can imagine, men are in hospital convalescing. The memories of the traumatic event they've been through might not be the, might not be the strongest. They might also felt the need to offer false hope. Of, well, I'm not really sure, but it's quite possible he was taken prisoner, you know, because the Germans were quite close. So sometimes it did shed light on what had happened to a missing man. But... Uh, often it would also disconfuse the matter further. So it was a bit hit and miss, really. As Ian e. Foster himself wrote, it's depressing in a way, because if one does get news about the missing, it's generally bad news. Uh, also, sometimes if the information was too specific, the the volunteers would have grief the other way. There was an example of an Australian uh, searcher who actually managed to find news of a particular Australian soldier related it back to the family and saying, yes, he's, he's basically was, he was torn in two, his torso removed from his body. This particular mother took exception to the graphic nature of that report and complained all the way up the, the line of the Australian Red Cross and into the sort of state government in Australia. So the, the official efforts of the Red Cross and, and St. John Wounded and Missing Bureau were extensive. It did provide information for some families, specific information, in other examples, such as in, in the book uh, Private Alan Sterling, all his family got was an amalgam of statements from men from that battalion about their own experience over a, a, like a nine-day retreat. So there was no specific information relating to Private Sterling, but the family could at least try and piece together snippets of what had happened over the, the course of the days during which he, he went missing. I think that's one of the most interesting things for me about, about your book, was talking about the way in which the information really was conveyed. I mean, it's powerful, really powerful language for anybody to read, but to think that that's describing the last moments of your loved one, who you might not have heard from in quite a while, you certainly might not have seen them in in months, and then to hear, you know, the, the, the words, like you've said there, the mother of Private Charles Baker had been told that he'd been killed, basically riddled with bullets, which is just a horrendous 
image to receive and so it was fascinating like you say where there kind of was some attempt to try and mitigate some of the language there the graphic nature of that to kind of tone it down a bit so that it was a bit more acceptable but also that sometimes relatives wanted to know detail about how their relatives had died well, yeah, you're dealing with individuals. I mean, the, the Bureau received over 340,000 inquiries during the war. So you've got 340,000 different people as receiving end of those inquiries, some of whom would want the absolute truth, no matter how graphic. Others, as, as you, you said, with Sergeant Black, would be horrified at the, the, the graphic details. So eventually the War Office took over the, the censoring of these reports to make sure they were of a consistent nature and getting in that sweet spot, almost, as it were, between, yes, your man is definitely dead, there was absolutely no doubt about that way of eyewitness reports, but we're not going to tell you exactly how. And in fact, example in the in the book of um, Lieutenant John Butt of the Royal Army Medical Corps, somebody had actually been with Butt when he died and had seen what had happened, but to persistent inquiries from Butt's mother, he couldn't actually get across the whole graphic nature of what he'd seen, which is probably Lieutenant Butt's brains blown all over his commanding officer. And therefore, the mother just wouldn't accept that the account was true. She kept you know, emphasising the letters, it doesn't stack up, there's, there's inconsistencies here, he's, he's not telling me everything, so therefore there's a slight truth. If he's not telling me everything, he's not telling the whole truth, and therefore my son might be, might be alive. So it's a tremendously important but stressful task these volunteers are undertaking, and indeed anybody who was contacted by relatives to try and find out you know, more directly what had happened to their loved one. And what other options were open to families in trying to find out what happened to a loved one who was posted missing if, if their initial inquiries weren't successful? Often they would put advertisements in, in regional newspapers because, for example, an example of the Sheffield Pals, many of the, the, the wounded came home and were, were convalescing in Sheffield. You know, people would put advertisements in, does anybody know any news of my son, Private Arthur Greensmith? Circulation lists of the missing were sent to, to German prisoner of war camps in case you know, they might match up at the name of a missing man. The Queen Victoria Jubilee Fund Association also undertook to try and liaise with the German authorities to try, try and elicit names. But a lot of families took it upon themselves to trace any possible contacts of those who might possess knowledge. And I mentioned where, where this story all started for me, that the Pope family of Dorchester in Dorset, the patriarch of the family, Alfred Pope, was quite a, a renowned local figure. He was a magistrate. He owned extensive lands in the town, really developed the town into the built-up area we see today. He had contacts everywhere. So the amount of people he, he wrote to, the, the, the families of fellow officers of his sons in the particular battalion, the, the family wrote dozens of letters. I mean, it even went to the extent of contacting the King of Spain to see if he could use his offices as, as, as a neutral country and still having an embassy in Berlin to try and get more information that way. Similarly, the family of Lieutenant Butt, who I mentioned earlier, they also wrote to the King of Spain. And um, because Lieutenant Butt's father had been a Lieutenant Colonel in the Royal Army Medical Corps, they actually wrote to Alfred Keogh, who was the Director General of Medical Services, to, to try and ascertain information. But the ironic thing is, families like the Butts and the Popes to have the extensive contacts, the wherewithal to keep writing, to keep, to keep finding new leads. What they did was extend the uncertainty and extend the agony for themselves. You know, in the, in the case of, of Lieutenant Butt's family, it took his mother a full two years to finally accept the reality of her son's death. He, he was killed in October 1914 and it wasn't until late 1916 
that she eventually accepted that you know her son was no more yeah that's a hell of a thing to keep pursuing that for that amount of time when yeah there is you know realistically what more information can you kind of can you kind of gain from that but yeah i know it must be you know you can't even imagine can you another thing to add is um sometimes these families having put advertisements in the newspapers will then get unsolicited inquiries themselves so another man in the book right from an Ernest blackburn was a, a school teacher in leeds and his wife annie had put the advertisements in the newspapers and it had been seen by a lady called mrs dawes who lived in scarborough and Mrs. Dawes started bombarding Annie with letters, almost like offloading her own anxiety and grief onto Annie. One thing Mrs. Dawes wrote to Annie Blackburn, it seems too cruel for words that us women should give our men and never get the satisfaction of knowing what becomes of them. We're told to believe everything is done for the best, but it's hard to think so at the time when we women have to face blows like these. So, you know, not, Annie Blackburn not only dealing with her own anxiety, grief, growing realisation, Ernest would never return. But I mean, to take on board the, the angst, the anger of, of somebody else against the, the military authorities. For the kind of people that did have a grave that they could potentially go and visit in France or Belgium on the Western Front, we've spoken about this a little bit in previous episodes. Was that doable for most people to kind of get over there if they did have a place to kind of, you know, gain closure or go and mourn or just to, you know, seek solace in that? It was very variable, depending on sort of social class and, and wealth, and in those days, proximity to, to the Western Front. Even before the war ended, Thomas Cook were getting inundated with inquiries about when they were going to start tours of the battlefields. I mean, some people actually went over after the war to try and find the location of, of their loved one. Uh, there was a, a lady called Hazel McNapton. She hired people in Belgium to undertake door-to-door inquiries. Again snippets of information which she could enlarge to, to tell herself a narrative that her husband Angus was was still aboard. The, the closest she would come to her husband would be in August 1939 when she took their son to the, the Men in Gate Memorial accompanied by her husband's ex-colleagues. Another lady, Agnes Littleboy, her son had been killed in an attack in October 1917 while serving the Royal, Royal Warwickshires. After the war she actually travelled to the place close to where she thought her, her son had been killed knocked on the door of the, the local Catholic parish priest and he actually managed to find the whereabouts of the lost grave of Wilfred Littleboy and managed to give him a proper burial in the headstone uh, that you can visit to now. And she was so grateful, uh, she gave a generous donation for the church because the, the priest wouldn't take any money for the assistance. So yeah, people did go across either to, to conduct searches and, and to visit the graves. And one of the saddest pictures in the book is a, a lady called Amy Lott uh, her brother, Captain Willie Lott, had been last seen in October 1916. You know, we can see her sitting in the desolation of, of the Somme battlefield in 1919, just searching for any scrap of information that would tell her where, where Willie was. And, you know, she never found him. He's, he's on a T-Bone memorial today. That is a truly powerful image, actually, seeing her sat on the battlefield with your typical Western Front image of desolation of trees that are just stumps of of churned up ground and just to see her sat there in the middle of that like you say trying to trying to find out what happened to captain lot is is shocking really and shows that the war the effects of the war didn't end when the armistice was signed in 1918 you know for the for the families of these soldiers it it, it carries on and one of the darker and truly shocking characters that are mentioned in your book is that of edward page gaston and his attempts to trick desperate families to pay sums for him to find out information. Can you tell us a little bit more about who Gaston was and and about how some charlatans were trying to take advantage of family tragedy, basically? 
Yeah, yeah, Gaston was an American citizen. Um, so uh, at the time, America was, it was a neutral country. So he claimed to have uh, access to, to German prisons that British families wouldn't be able to have. So he encouraged a circulation of reports that he was able to, um, any men who had been captured and sent to prison, he could have their effects returned to the family. And then he extended that to imply that he had access to privileged information to British prisoners of war held in Germany. And in return for, for large fees, you know, up to £50, he might be able to locate information about soldiers who had been reported missing. Uh, he was an absolute charlatan, as you say. He had photographs taken of himself uh, standing by the grave of a British soldier. But eventually the, the authorities did, did catch up with him. He was sort of disowned by the American ambassador. He was eventually put up for trial and fortunately for these families faded from the scene but not after causing an immense amount of hurt an immense amount of psychological damage to the families and uh, who were doing the searches and you know, embarrassing the authorities along the way i think that's the darker side of, of the war again that's not usually reported about how some people would take advantage of the terrible situation that these people in for their own financial gain and it seems utterly unbelievable really to us that someone would do that but sadly those kind of things unfortunately carry on today, don't they? People see opportunity in, in tragedy. But probably more poignantly, Gaston, it was a, you know, a charlatan, a, a, a bad piece of work. But, um, for example, in the city of Sheffield after the war, there was, there was a, a public book of remembrance that, that was available in the town hall and people could go and look at names, you know, and it included the names of the missing. So often a family who, you know, not heard of their loved ones for five, six years, will get a knock on the door and, you know, somebody will say, I knew your man, I was with him in his final moments. Well, since the war, I've fallen on such hard times, uh, you know, oh, come in, come in. So they were trying to ingratiate themselves into the families who were still desperate for news. On occasions, they may have had definitive news. On other occasions, that they, they never even knew the man. They just, just found his name in the Book of Remembrance, which is on public view in, the, in you know, Sheffield City Centre and then try and extort money or ingratiate themselves into the family that way. So it went on for years after the war. That is a dark thought, a dark side to the war, like you say, that again isn't, isn't really talked about much, unfortunately. So across your book, you sort of feature the stories of, of eight soldiers. And from these, religion plays a key role in their, in their background and, and their story. Can you tell us a bit more about how important faith was to the families uh, of these soldiers, of their understanding of the war, and also what it played in in helping them come to terms with the the loss of a loved one. Yeah, it's re really interesting because you had Catherine White on on a previous podcast who was talking about the importance of religious culture to, to the soldiers uh, who were serving. But the, on on the other side, those soldiers were backed by families for whom religion was tremendously important as well. To, to an extent, you know, it's very hard for us to to understand at this point in the 21st century. You know, religion was everywhere. A lot of people, social lives, sporting lives was organised through the churches and people on a whole spectrum of faith from the devout to the nominal. But there were very few soldiers, as Catherine said, who would have taken the opportunity to put themselves down as atheist or non-believer. And that carries right through to the Second World War as well. It's a tiny minority would say, no, I don't believe in God at all. So it's something that's really hiding in plain sight. I didn't set out when researching these families or this book to to try and impose, you know, the, the fact that Christianity was important on the stories I was finding, but it was hiding there in plain sight. 
So of the eight young men in the book, I mentioned Ernest Blackburn, he was a prominent member of Dewsbury Congregational Church. He was a Sunday school teacher, a chorister. He, he led the church cricket team. His letters mentioned, to his wife mentioned trusting in God. Uh, Private Greensmith of the Sheffield Pals, who I've mentioned, his family were active Methodists. Arthur was actually one of 300,000 men who'd signed the YMCA war roll. So that was a scheme initiated in May 1915, where men using the YMCA huts could affirm their commitment to Christ. Unfortunately, the administration was so delayed that the family did not receive Arthur's membership card and an affirmation of his Christian belief until 1917, when he'd already been dead a year. So again, we've got these families that they're finally accepted. Yeah, Arthur's dead. We're not going to hear anything more about him. And suddenly this reminder comes through of something he signed two years ago that it might have been a comfort to them that he you know, died in Christ from their point of view, but it may have caused further anguish, you know, seeing his name on something. Another man in the book, I mentioned Percy Pope. His family, very traditional Anglicans, pillar of the community. Um, Percy himself left a, a, a substantial sum for the improvement uh, of the church that his brother-in-law was, was the vicar of. In fact, there's one, one sort of quite flowery scene that after the war, Percy Pope's brother-in-law, who was vicar of Fordington Church in Dorset, wrote an account of all, all the family's roles in the war, so all 14 of them. When, it, when he's ending his account of Percy, he describes him lying there in no man's land, drawing his final breath. And this is all supposition because Percy was missing. We never know what happened to him. And, and the final thoughts that went through his head as he, as, he, as he drew his last breath was the improvements that would be made to St George's Church at Fordington with a generous sum of his going to leave to the church. So the most rationalising Percy's death by the fact that, that the church is going to, you know, I've got a nice new extra um, chancel there. You know, that, that's, that's quite good. Uh, another extremely interesting family in the book, the, the Donnellys of Belfast were Roman Catholics living in Belfast. We know what was happening in Ireland at the time, arguments over home rule, the Easter Rising, etc. So Gilbert had taken the active decision to join the British Army despite being a Roman Catholic. Uh, but they weren't sectarian Catholics. Um, Gilbert's father had married a Presbyterian. So all the way through, either re religion as a social organisational tool or religion as a matter of personal faith is in there uh, throughout the, the stories of these families and others. So in terms of what the families thought about um, religion and the war, and one, one of the most extreme examples is um, the Bishop of London, uh, Arthur Winnington Ingram. He, he was a very jingoistic man. He talked about the war being a great crusade to kill Germans, to kill them, not for the sake of killing, but to save the world, kill the good as well as the bad, kill the young as well as the old. So whilst Winnington Ingram was an extreme example, you know, that these families were going to church on a regular basis and hearing from the pulpits that, you know, your son is fighting a just war, he's fighting for God, king and country. And so that helped them to reconcile the sacrifices they were making in terms of sending their, their sons and husbands to the various fronts around the world. So church has provided the rationale for the war effort, they provided a sense of community. As I said, it's not just about Sunday worship, lots of church organised events, sporting events, social events. I mean, in terms of coming to terms with the loss, if, if once a man had been reported missing or you know, once that missing had been confirmed as dead, a, a parish priest or nonconformist minister would have provided some personal comfort. But from then, and this, this touches upon your whole project of the Unknown Warrior, in terms of the commemoration of that loss, families would turn to religion to, to do that. I mean, it, you go across the cemeteries of the Western Front and elsewhere around the world, the, the bodies who can't be identified, what words are on the, the tombstone, it's known unto God. Every cemetery which has a, a decent number of Commonwealth war burials has a cross of sacrifice. So it's equating the 
the sacrifice of the, the, these men to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. For the Commonwealth War Graves Cemeteries, the, the Stone of Remembrance was recognised by its designer, Edwin Lutyens, to represent a church altar. Uh, the words on that Stone of Remembrance, their name liveth forevermore, were chosen by Rudyard Kipling from the, the Ecclesiasticus uh, book of the, the, the Bible. So it, it's everywhere. In terms of the Unknown Warrior, the chief drivers of that project, is, as you emphasised, David Railton and Herbert Ryle were men of faith. The, the inscription on the tomb of the Unknown Warrior, talking about the, the multitude who during the Great War gave most that man can give for life itself, for God. And then at the end of the main inscription, they buried him among the kings because he had done good toward God and towards his house. And then all the text around the edge, I could go on and on and on. You know, we've got Bible quotes there. So the national appropriation of religious symbolism and terminology to the work of the Imperial War Grace Commission, the establishment of the tomb of the unknown warrior is just laced right through with religion, as you've mentioned before. But in terms of the families in the book, that was also married at community level and local level when we're able to, you know, when parish churches are open once again, just to open the door and have a have a look around, have a nosy around. You know, the vast majority of churches you go into, parish churches love a roll of honour. Uh, frequently be a marble plaque or, or one of those crosses from the Western Front I mentioned earlier that, that memorialise an individual. There might be a window to an individual or a window to the men of that particular parish who haven't come back or a Thanksgiving window for those who have come back. There might be a, a, a clock named after somebody who'd fallen on the Western Front, a, a lectern, an altar. You know, I mentioned Arthur Greensmith of the Sheffield Pals. On the first anniversary of the first day of the Battle of the Somme, where so many of them had fallen, uh, there began an annual remembrance service in Sheffield Cathedral. And one interesting story, it, it could become contentious and, and bound up with Christianity again. There's a village um, about an hour's drive from where I live, it's called Haxby, it's in North Lincolnshire. And there are actually two war memorials there with identical names on. The main memorial is outside the Anglican Parish Church, okay? But one of the local worthies of Haxby, who happened to be a Methodist, really resented the fact that the memorial committee decided to have it placed outside the parish church. So he had one memorial designed himself and put at the opposite end of the village with the same names on, but not outside the parish church. So he was trying to disassociate. Although he's a Methodist himself and a Christian, he didn't want the sacrifice associated with the Anglican Church. He wanted it associated with the community. And if I may, Jace, this is one particular story I'd like to go into. Is that a private George Jackson? He was uh, a young man from a village called Carlton in Lindridge. It's just outside Worksop, uh, Nottinghamshire. He was killed where well, he went missing 21st of March 1918. And his mother eventually received just over £24 in sort of war bounty for him. And she decided to build a memorial to him in the churchyard there and it, it was a statue of a, of a soldier with his head bowed with the uniform of the Sherwood Foresters on there, George being a member of that battalion and she had the phrase that's on so many war memorials, greater love hath no man and this hath a man lay down his life for his friends and that was put there in the 1920s. Now at some point in the 1960s that memorial lost its head. I only found out about this because doing one of my drives around looking at church and looking at war memorials I suddenly pulled up and it's like it made me take my breath away that there was this statue of a soldier obviously a warm and private war memorial missing its head so we dug down a bit further contacted various people in that community and we put together a group that sought to have the memorial restored to its original state and what was really nice about it that the children of the school of that particular village took part in it the funds were eventually raised to have that memorial restored and renovated and a hundred years after private jackson's death 
a service took place with you know, members of his regiment, local MP, etc., and it was re-established. So stories of the missing resonate now, 100 years on. Enough people in that community cared enough about the memory of Private Jackson to raise funds, to, to research about him and his, and his missing comrades, and to actually re restore that and have a memorial service for him in the church. So the, the, the memories of these missing soldiers never go away. Yes, there's the grief of the families at the time, the anxiety, the searching, but to this day, it's really nice to see how communities still care for those men. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, my own personal experience is that, you know, you can go into many, many churchyards across the land and find reference in family gravestones to soldiers that are missing or that are buried where the, the families might not have been able to go and to reach them or they, they obviously weren't there when they were laid to rest, but they're still commemorated even on private family grave plots gravestones as well as you know these like say the memorials in churches and uh, in war memorials that are in civic centers and i definitely strongly recommend that anybody go and have a little look in their local churchyard and and have an explore and find the stories that are just waiting there i'd like to say john we're we've got so many questions so many different topics to discuss with you that we're gonna split the podcast in two and have two separate episodes dedicated to you because there's so many more things that we want to cover within the book that we found absolutely fascinating and we'll go into that uh, detail in the next episode but for now i'd just like to say thank you for coming on the podcast it's been fantastic and we very much look forward to uh, speaking to you again in the next episode i thank you both of you it's been a real privilege to take part